Welcome to Always Authors, the literary podcast that presents two authors in candid conversation. On this episode, we're excited to bring you Lynn Steger-Strong, author of the novels Hold Still, Want, and her latest release, Flight, available on November 8th. Lynn is joined by Jill Bailoski, novelist and poet, who is also executive editor at W.W. Norton & Company. Jill's newest volume of poetry, Asylum, a personal historical natural inquiry in 103 lyric sections, was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award, and her memoir, History of a Suicide, My Sister's Unfinished Life, was a New York Times bestseller. Lynn and Jill examine Jill's latest novel, The Deceptions, to take a deep dive into a variety of issues, such as personal power, shame, and the complicated ways patriarchal systems affect feminine sensibilities within the creative process and inform their reception in the world. Inspiration starts now. Jill, I can, I can, I'll, I'll start because, okay. because you invited me and also because you had a book out yesterday, which is pretty thrilling. Um, and, and maybe I'll just, I'll, I'll start by saying what I just said to you because Jen, we just heard there are no rules to this podcast <laughs> to say that this book kind of fucked me up. Um, and, and I feel thrilled to be here because the, the words that I sort of keep popping about in my head and I think they're words that are always popping about in my head but this book crystallized for me in, in new and exciting ways are sort of the way that femininity is informed and constructed by violence and violation mm -hmm. um, and so I just wonder you know we could talk about the book but I also just want to talk to you about those words um, so what are your thoughts? Wow, Lynn. Well, first of all, um, thank you for, for being here with me and um, having this conversation. And thank you for reading The Deceptions. I'm really um, just very flattered by that because um, I'm a fan of your your criticism and, and your writing. Um, so anyways... Um, yeah, what were the words again? Uh, <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> um, is it? No. Oh, um, I, get, I think I think you know uh, the the book is it's femininity feels like it's it's oh. it's this sort of central point, yes. but then the way that the words violence and violation function in conversation with what it is to inhabit a female body in the world. Yeah, that's so, um, that's certainly something that was really on my mind when I was writing the deceptions and, and working on it. And you know how when you start a book and you begin to delve into your character and um, figure out who she's all about, and my novel is written from the first person point of view, which was actually quite challenging for me in the first time that I had um, written from that point of view. So Lynn, I, um, I guess once I um, started inhabiting uh, this character, um, and she's my protagonist is a, um, she's a poet, she's a teacher at an all boys prep school. And she's a, um, a wife and a mother, 
and uh, juggling all of these different hats. And I, as I was creating her, I really began to think about um, femininity and um, what what it is like to be a woman in uh, midlife. And um, of course, my character's son has gone off to college and she's bereft and um, doesn't quite know who she is anymore without the mother part, which has anchored her in some ways. And um, I was also very interested in exploring the patriarch and how institutes are still very much um, uh, informed by these, by the patriarch and, and, you know, society as well. Um, Part of the novel, as you know, is set in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in the Greek and Roman galleries and these gods and goddesses and the whole classical Greeks, Roman society um, just became a really interesting way to think about the patriarchy and femininity and what that means and how and those tensions and dynamics. So that was certainly um, a thread in the novel. And I wonder what, I mean, so, so it's interesting because you, the book, there's, there's, there's a sort of beautiful description and I know that you're a poet, so it makes sense. Um, But there's a beautiful description and then there's a, there's a sentence all by itself with white space on either side that says something terrible has happened and I don't know what to do. And on the one hand, having read the full book, I know the terrible thing. On the other hand, I feel like the terrible thing could be all of history, (laughs) right? (laughs) Your narrator's experience is embedded in, like you said, this sort of exploration of mythology and history and, and the way that she's surrounded by institutions in which patriarchy is sort of overwhelming and oppressive. Um, so again, I wonder, you know, what you said you wanted to talk about patriarchy, but the, but I think the great thing about novels is the way that they give us a new, and we all know it's bad, right? We all know we don't like it, right? right. But like, <laughs> but like, what were the specific violences that it enacts that you wanted to explore? Um, and how did the book give you access to that? Yeah, that, yeah, no, thank you. That's really, um, that's really a um, big part of the book. And um, yes, when I do open it, um, something terrible has happened. I wanted, I wanted to just open the book in a crisis that there, you know, because the voice of this novel is uh, very raw and the character is, is in a crisis and she's on edge and um, there's, you know, a storm going on outside um, her apartment and she's alone with her husband and the the son has left and she has literally been repressing um, an encounter that has happened to her prior, um, the year prior to when the book opens or at least six to eight months prior to when the book opens that she's been repressing 
And somehow um, at this dinner with her husband and with the news that she finds out, um, she's a poet. She's um, published two books of poetry and has been working um, for um, for a long time on this new um, book length um, book uh, of 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 a volume of poetry called um, The Rape of the Swan. And she's just discovered that um, that there's an impending review at the New York Times Book Review, so that has her also on edge. And um, there's something terrible that happens is throughout the book is what she's trying to digest. So there's sort of two timelines. There's the timeline of moving forward um and she, she as i mentioned she teaches at an all boys school and she's teaching her boys the odyssey and that connects with her museum trips to the gods and goddesses and um you know in some ways i i thought that it was very funny to have this character who is in this kind of crisis relate to these gods like um, Heracles and Athena as if they really could help her and she, she feels desperate. And some of the desperation is personal, but she's also manifesting anger um, that has built up over the years about the about being a woman and having to to juggle um, her passion and her drive for writing, you know, with um, with being a mother and um, a wife, and how does she have this privacy to delve into her own work is also a theme in the book. But somehow the she connects with this idea that if she were not a woman she would not have the same kinds of pressures um, in terms of creating, of, of allowing herself that space to be able to create. Um, and so I put her in an institution that has been um, a, a prep school, a boys prep school purposely um, to see what I could find out. Um, so I'm sure you, as a writer, this happens to you. You kind of put your character in a intense situation to see what you can find out. You know, I mean, I never know ahead of time where any of of my where this novel, for instance, was going until I just kept exploring. You know, you kind of set up. I had this wonderful friend and uh, author um, with my editor's hat on, um, Frederick Bush, who's now deceased. I don't know if you've ever read his stories or his novels. He's a wonderful writer. But um, when I was struggling with my first novel, he told me that, um, you know, for him, the most important thing in terms of finding out of of beginning a book was that he had to give his character a profession mm -hmm. he had to know like what that person does during the day mm -hmm. and i think by giving my character this you know profession also 
both as a poet and a teacher allowed more evolution into some of this rage I'm talking I I think penetrates in the book yeah yeah no it's interesting I mean first just sort of like almost a sidebar to say that I'm sort of constantly fascinated by the amount of fiction where no one has jobs because, <laughs> because it's just I mean not only do most humans grown-up humans have jobs but like jobs are just kind of endlessly narratively useful right because they right. give us logistics and situations and all of these things um but 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 one thing that I find particularly fascinating about what you did with this character and even what you just said is that like the idea I mean it's 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 interesting because it almost feels it, it it would almost if it almost feels boring to talk about feminism or patriarchy because we all know the language but but I feel like one of the things that your book does so well is say okay sure we know it but nothing is any better right and so there's something I think really interesting about what you say in terms of your character like she, I mean, first of all, one thing that I really loved is that she loves being a mother, right? Like she loves, mm -hmm. she loves inhabiting aspects of her femininity, right? So her rage is not so straightforward as I hate being a woman. She, she loves various aspects and she has a sort of fascinating relationship with a younger woman, which I imagine we'll talk more about. But, but again, I, I, I she inhabits aspects of her femininity in ways that feel, like she appreciates it and enjoys it. And yet this idea that to want to seek refuge in art, which she does both as an artist and by continually returning to the Met is deeply complicated by the fact that her status as a woman makes her less interesting as an artist, right? So I wonder about, yes. I wonder if, what, what do you got? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I guess you, I guess that, um, you know, I think that over the years, I mean, I've been, um, I just thinking about my early days, um, becoming, finding my voice as a writer and going to graduate school and dealing with, um, with, you know, I hate to generalize because there's been some wonderful, you know, men in my life and, and writers, male writers that I admire and so forth. But I have felt, you know, the almost the judgment of the patriarchy is very extreme. Yeah. And I'm not sure, you know, this may be also slightly personal because I grew up without a father. My father died when I was young, when I was two. And so I, I always had this, and so there were no male figures really in, or in my coming of age. I grew up in an all-female household with, with um, three other sisters and, and my mother. And so I always was kind of a little um, frightened by male figures of authority. And so I had to figure out how to navigate that. But then as I was exploring this character, I also realized that she was angry that she even had to think about that. Right. You right. know, why, why does a woman have to feel she has to organize herself around the patriarchy? 
um, who, who in my book, in her institution still holds rank, and even in the poetry world that she navigates still holds, holds rank. Right. And we think things have changing, but I, I, I'm not so sure. Right. I don't think we've got there. We've gotten there at all. And hence, I did want to have a younger female character that you mention, um, um, who is a um, her my my central protagonist neighbor has a daughter, and. Um, my protagonist, um, they have a connection. They, they, they become friends in a way. And, and my protagonist kind of mentors her a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my thinking along those lines was like, what will it be like for the next generation of my character? Right. You know, will she have her own agency early on? Um, whereas my character, I don't think finds her real agency until the end of the, the novel. Right. Does that make sense to you? It makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, I think I found a lot of, again, like I said, the book, the book sort of fucked me up and we'll talk more about this, but I, but I felt like the, the younger character was the sort of, was the source of hope, right. Within, within the novel. And, and I think, you know, when you're talking about patriarchy, again, it's this word that I almost don't want to use because it feels yeah. like it's absence of meaning. But I think one thing is like, well, yeah, we all know nice, some nice guys, you know, like my husband's a way better cook than I am. Right. But like, <laughs> but, but, but we're not talking about individuals. We're talking mm -hmm. about systems. Right? right. And, right. and so this larger, and I, and I do wonder about not least because they said we can talk about whatever we want. Like you have been in this business in so many different capacities for, for a while, you know, like, and again, I'm sure have known some truly extraordinary men who are writers and thinkers and respect you as a writer and a thinker, but how have the sort of larger systems, which again, I think the book, the book deals with so way, so, so well, even so there's so you said there's a there's a there's sort of the portent of the book review at the beginning of the novel and then the book review comes out and I was sort of devastated by the fact of the review but also like what's wrong with me that I thought it would be anything else right which is just to say that like systems aren't just individuals their language their structures they're all of these things their expectations about what a piece of art should be and what makes a piece of art valuable right so I wonder just like how, what have you learned? What has shifted about the way that the system is form, is informed by these ideas that prioritize, that often prioritize men? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I think throughout, um, you know, throughout the arts, I've um, not just literature, but um, I, I, I can't remember um, there was an artist recently who said that she um, always was afraid to create art of, out of domesticity because she was afraid that she would be excluded from um, the art world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was certainly something that as a young poet, I felt that um, I think, um, you know, um, that, that in order to get the attention from 
the critics or from, um, you know, to, to get attention for, for my work, there were certain subjects that one should avoid, but I didn't want to avoid those subjects. And, and in my poetry, I do write quite a bit about domesticity and, and motherhood and desire, female desire. Um, but still, um, there feels as if um, when a male writer or an artist delves into domesticity and family, those works are considered brilliant. <laughs> but when a woman does it, they're considered small or quiet. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that was kind of on my mind. That's been on my mind for a long time. I think about that when I read reviews, when I, um, you know, I'm reading um, and and just in, in as I said, in, in many facets of the art world. So I, you know, I feel like when I'm, you know, writing is the vehicle, I, um, you know, I almost don't want the book to be, um, you know, I just want the life of the characters and the life of the world that the book encompasses to poke at this, yeah. you know, to poke at these ideas. But of course, I don't really have the answers. You know, I think that what we can do as writers is that we can embody. Um, and of course, my character is different from who I am. And that's always, you know, interesting. Um, um, as a writer to to separate that. Yeah. But one hopes that, you know, through the world that the book creates that readers will respond to and maybe think about those questions. Have things changed? Is it harder for women still than men? Um, or, you know, perhaps other readers may think, oh, um, well, well, um, maybe the visiting poet's work is better than hers, right. <laughs> you know, um, and, you know, so in a way, I wonder if you think she's an unreliable narrator. That was something I was thinking about when I wrote the book. Well, I mean, I think that's an interesting question because I don't, yeah. I mean, I mean, first of all, like a, th a word that I was thinking as you were talking is the word judgment, right? Mm -hmm. And how she is, the book opens with she's going to get a review, right? And so that's a sort of judgment. This is a rendering of a judgment, right? Which which already is both like, and it's it's almost, you know, it's almost we could we could unpack the particularities of the New York Times at a later date, right? But like, <laughs> it is the it is the it is the on high. It's a paper of record, right? It's judgment from the paper of record. So that has a certain level of like quote unquote reliability, right? And then we have the judgment of our narrator who's telling us a story and telling us that something terrible has happened, which is to say that like, 
I always take on faith and then find great pleasure from the fact that everything inside of a novel is built through subjectivity, right? And it's the subjectivity that's the most interesting thing. And I was enthralled of her subjectivity, right? Which I guess is also unreliable, but then I don't think anything's reliable. You know, like... I'm I was in it for her judgments right Mm -hmm. I was in it for her narration um and I think maybe what's interesting and feels connected to sort of all of the things that we're talking about is that it feels particularly patriarchal to believe that any individual judgment should be prioritized in such a clear way um as something like a New York Times book review, mm-hmm. right? And I and I wonder about sort of establishing that as that's the main portent of the beginning of the novel, and then there's like a more physical violation at the end. Um, and so I wonder about sort of how you think, I'll just say it's a thing I think about a lot, mm-hmm. is the sort of gradations of violence, right? And we we talk a lot about, or we don't, I don't know if we talk a lot, but like, it's easy to say that a physical act is violent, and there is a physical act in this novel. But there are also these subtler violences, some of which inhabit judgments, that do a certain type of damage that I find kind of endlessly interesting. And Mm -hmm. I think that those live in this novel in a lot of different ways. And I wonder if you could just talk about like your interest in that, your relationship to that and the book's relationship to gradations of violence as it's experienced Mm -hmm. by a woman. Yes. Yes. That's a big part of the book. Lynn, thank you for that intuitive articulate, um, conversation about that. Um, you know, I think that, um, that, uh, when, um, you know, for, for women and particularly, you know, for women who are feminine and, um, somewhat soft-spoken as my character is in the book, um, you know, there's always this, fear this idea that you have to either that you somehow have to protect yourself or be on guard um you know and I know many friends of mine and people I know and myself have had to walk through various bombs that could go off (laughs) throughout um my coming of age and and as a woman um as a feminine person um um, who, you know, you, you either have to shield yourself from the male gaze somehow, or you have to know how to operate within it. Um, and um, she, my, my character, sees that, you know, sees how she's had to um, walk through those bombs, as it were, and I, I guess I do feel that um, looking back at the gods and goddesses, you know, um, the the central, you know, Zeus who who um, you know turn, sh- shift shift shapes every time he wants to seduce 
a mortal into a, an animal. Um, and, um, you know, there's so many um, in the Greek and Roman myths, there's so many myths about, um, about rape um, and entitlement. I think entitlement is something that um, I definitely poke at in this book. Um, definitely male entitlement that that um, one can, uh, uh, um, in, in my case, you know, um, in the novel, this visiting poet sort of chooses my narrator as somebody that he feels that he ha can have a certain power over her, and she falls victim to it. Um, and so, you know, again, it's kind of through the characters that I wanted those ideas to come forward. Um, and you're right, they are built into, um, built into the larger structures. Um, well, and they're also sort of inextricably linked to the, like one detail that I really love. And I think this is right. I've been reading too many different things lately, but the mm -hmm. lipstick, she keeps putting on lipstick. Right. And it makes me, it made me, it was, it was a wonderful detail, I think, just in terms of like, it could be my sort of lack of femininity or whatever, but I was just like, stop putting on the lipstick. You don't have to put on the lipstick. And, but also maybe you like the lipstick, right? It's the, it's this sort of complicated way that, that part of, part of the structures and expectations of femininity, right, are to be subject and object at the same time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So she is, and then she goes and looks at art, which is object, right? And she makes art, which is object that renders judgment by a subject, right? And 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 also the visiting poet has a relationship to subjectivity, right? That that he makes her object, right? And so I wonder even just if if you could talk about sort of the books and your relationship to, again, I think one of the things that fiction can do is let us inhabit the ways that we are a lot of things at the same time, right? And so how does the added inhabiting of one, of being an object, hinder or inform one's desire to be a subject? Mm, that's so great. That's so great. Wow. Um... Well, I think part of the situation in the novel, of course, is that it is extremely subjective. It's You see everything from her point of view, and I don't have an authorial voice, you know, coming over it or coming in, which I actually thought about at one point, but I, I made the decision just to keep it in her in her voice. And I think one of the reasons why I called the called the book The Deceptions is because you know, in my mind too, she she's self-deceptive. She knows that she's also been culpable in some ways um, in the um, in the friendship that she has with the visiting poet and the way in which it begins to evolve into a more of a flirtation. and she she knows she's culpable there. Um, and that was interesting to explore. I really didn't know what she was going to do. Um, I, you know, I, I really tiptoed in and out of different ways in which 
this friendship, how it would evolve between the two of them and whether she, you know, he would become a nice guy or not. Um, and in fact, I'll just give this away because why not? Um, but I did have one friend read the novel in an earlier draft and it was a male writer who I admire a lot. And he said, oh, Jill, why can't she just have fun? <laughs> you know, by meaning, you know, my protagonist, why can't she just have fun and like go with the flirtation and, you know, and um, well, it's be unfaithful to her husband? Why, why does she have to, you know, be so com complicated? And I had to kind of laugh um, at that because... Um, I couldn't do that. That right. was, you know, and it was just so funny to me. Yeah. Um, no, it's so, it's so fast. It's even, it's even really fascinating to listen to your language about it. Right. So, so just to sort of give background for people who haven't read the book, right. She's, she's engaged in a flirtation, but also her husband isn't great. And, and I'm interested in the ways that the husband is kind of just absence, which I think was a really smart and useful move. But, but it's interesting, even connected to what you said about being hesitant to inhabit the first person, which is also a level of subjectivity, mm -hmm. right? But then this idea that this character who is deeply entrenched in and informed by the larger systems that she exists within, right? Like she's not, she's not a barn burner. She's not, you know, she doesn't want to tear it all down. Right. 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 Um, and so she is, she is a, a woman who inhabits and, and engages in her femininity. And so then this idea of like hesitancy around one's subjectivity, I think about this all the time, just in sentence making, right? Which is to say that like, I want to write the sort of sentence that is confident and crystalline and strong. And yet part of who I am is often not confident. Right. Mm -hmm. And and part of who I am thinks it's actually really important to always question what you're asserting or what you're thinking. Right. But then I think to myself, but is that a good sentence? But then I think to myself, but who says what a good sentence is? Right. Because it's like, you know, it's like, do I become more masculine to be good at what I do? Or is there a way to redefine what's good, right? And again, I think this is a lot of what your book is dealing with, but your character is mostly still signed up for what's been delivered to her. Right, right. That's very true. Here are two brief messages from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Carrie Mayer, author of the national best-selling book, The Paris Bookseller. So I'm not just a writer, I'm an avid reader. And since Always Authors is sponsored by Bookfinity, I wanted to tell you a little bit more about it. Bookfinity is a website that is built by readers for readers. So you can get personalized book recommendations, create and share your book lists, review books, and refer friends to earn rewards. You start by taking a quick quiz to discover your reader type. And once you complete the quiz, you'll be taken to your My Bookfinity account. I took the quiz and got my reader type. I am a heroin addict, which is so accurate because I do love strong female leads. Now when I log into my Bookfinity account, I will get personalized book recommendations based on my reader type. 
Bookfinity also has a like it or lose it function, so I can quickly like the books that I'm interested in or lose the ones that I'm not. And it has a unique review system that goes beyond a star rating. I love that I can review a book based on how it made me feel and recommend it to others. To get started, visit bookfinity.com and take the reader type quiz and create your personalized account today. Buxton Books is proud to be a seasoned sponsor of the Always Authors podcast. Buxton Books is located in downtown Charleston, South Carolina on King Street, and we are a full-service, independent bookstore that also specializes in presenting one-of-a-kind literary events. Please come visit us in Charleston or online at buxtonbooks.com to purchase books and to receive our newsletter for information on events and booksellers' recommendations. We ship anywhere in the United States and internationally. Happy reading from Buxton Books. I remember um, one of my first jobs um, when I was out of college and in the workplace, and um, I recognized that I needed to talk louder. <laughs> now, I didn't want to talk louder because I sound funny, I feel, when I talk louder or when I try to exert, you know, a more... Um, confident voice um, and think just little things like that. Um, I had to really pay attention to just in terms of would people take me seriously, you know, as a, a writer, a thinker, a, a literary um, editor. And, you know, at some point I, figured it out. But um, I do, and I'm an observer as a person, I'm sure you are as well, because most writers are observers rather than always participants. Um, and, you know, the observations about the way in which men and women in the workplace differ is, to me, very interesting to watch. Yeah. Well, so and what did what did you figure out? Like, what did you, what did you learn? How did you learn to act over the course of your professional career? You know, sometimes, I mean, this is embarrassing to say, but sometimes, you know, I felt like I had to dress a certain way. Um, you know, if I don't see that as much now with younger women in the workplace. I think it's, at least in the arts, I think it's, I think there's more freedom to just be who you are. But I think when I entered the workplace, it was still pretty male dominated. And, you know, I felt like if I wore like a frilly dress or something, I wouldn't be taken seriously. Uh, you know, I remember my first job. Um, my mother told me that I should, you know, go out and buy a, a blazer. I don't think I ever had like a blazer to wear to, to work. And I went to one of those, it was called Bolton's at the time. I don't know if that's still around anymore, but, you know, I bought this red blazer to wear to my first day of work. And I have to say, I kind of, when I put it on, I did feel different. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. felt a little more confident, but, you know, what does that mean really? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that we adopt these personas right. um, in order to, you know, maybe maybe personas are protection, and I see, you know, not to generalize again about men and women because I don't I don't want to do that. But 
I, I, I kind of realized also in writing this book that, um, that, you know, men have their own, um, personas that the, these personas of confidence, um, for instance, are personas, you know, like I'm ra- you know, I raised a boy, um, and, um, I see, you know, you know that not everybody is as confident as they, as their persona submits to the world. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting, like, uh, so you're using the word persona, but one word that I think is also inside of the book and just inside of a lot of what we're talking about is performativity, right? And I think that, like, yes, one thing that's also really interesting to me, and again, I think inside of the book is, is there is a, so, so there's a general idea that, like, having to be object all the time is quite exhausting and challenging, which, which I agree with. But I also think exactly what you said, having the awareness that subjectivity exists, that performativity always exists is also its own type of power. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, we can talk about men and women, but we can also just talk about people who are aware enough to know that part of what informs the choices that we make and the way that we move through the world is a sense of performing that that is actually a sort of power. Mm -hmm. Right. And I wonder thinking about your main character and again, her lipstick is a type of power, Mm -hmm. right? Like what are the sources, what are her sources of power, even as she throughout the book often feels quite powerless? Mm -hmm. You know, I think that she feels powerful, um, certainly as a mother, Um, and also I think she feels powerful about her need to, um, to create, you know, that her imaginative inner life is very, um, is a drive that she has to carry out. But unfortunately she, she bears guilt, um, not just guilt for, um, transgressing, a little bit, but, um, also guilt of, of creating, you know, that she's taking the time away from her other duties. And that was interesting to me to think about kind of, you know, again, going back to the Greek and Romans, um, and, you know, early societies where the duty of women was really, you know, to, to raise a child and to, to, and to, um, be subservient to the husband. And I was thinking about how my character, though her husband may not, um, make, be making her feel guilty that internally she carries this guilt. Yeah. Um, of, of, you know, in other words, like writing her, her, poem always felt to her like she had to keep it a secret Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so that was interesting yeah um and I do think you know I mean women I published this really interesting book at Norton um the baby on the fire escape by Julie Phillips about motherhood and creativity and um and Julie um 
magnificently, brilliantly uh, wrote about um, these major women writers um, who were mothers and were juggling both motherhood and creativity. And, for instance, um, uh, Ursula Le Guin loved having children and um, organized her life, her writing life around her children when she when when she was able to, when they went to school, she was able to write, and um, and um, Alice, Alice Neal, the artist, gave had to give up one of her children, um, and um, her children did not always come first um, in in her making art. So this was a theme that I mean not because of Julie's book, but something that I was working on myself and thinking about um, the difference between a, a male artist and a female artist and what, that you know, um, would a father who had a full-time job and also wanted to um, be an artist feel guilty for not being with his family? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's interesting is that you started you started this by saying that she gets her power from her motherhood, right? That she loves. And again, I think it's a thing I really love about the book is that she she loves being a mother, you know, and like I will just like I, too, love being a mother, no, <laughs> you know, like, no, it's amazing. I, I love it. And I and, you know, it's it's interesting, though, how that relates back to culpability. Right. Because then it's like if she loves being a mother, if a mother loves being a mother, she is culpable in all of the time and energy that she spends being a mother and not being an artist, right? Because because part of me feels really sad for all those male artists who never got to love being a father, you mm -hmm. know? And, and also it, the way that I think, at least for me, and I wonder if it did, does for you, like, I think that being a mother and loving my children as much as I love my children and knowing my children makes me a better artist. Yes. Um, and so I wonder how that, you know, how inhabiting that from a place of power, like thinking again about kind of flipping some of this, like what is the power that maybe you have acquired as an artist by virtue mm -hmm. of also being a mother? Mm-hmm. Yes, I love that you said that because I feel the same way. And I think that one of the things um, that my, even though my narrator is anxious and concerned about this review coming in the New York Times book review, and I kind of have to laugh at that because, you know, we know as writers that you can't control what the any reviewer is going to do with your work. And, um, you know, in a way, I was kind of having fun with this, that that she was so anxious and so worried about this goddamn review as if it was going to change her life, you know. And the one thing that I think she does have agency and power is that she does really believe in this book she's written, The Rape of the Swan, I call it. And in the, in the Rape of the Swan, in her what I imagine that book is, is that there's an abductor um, who tries to ruin 
the family, this, you know, the male and the female swan, and then another swan, male swan comes in and tries to abduct her away and ruin her family. But I imagine in the actual, if I had written the book of the rape of the swan, um, that wouldn't happen. It, the, the, um, so do you know what I'm saying? Like my idea for it is that even though she finds out, spoiler alert, that she doesn't get a good review, um, she still believes in her book. Yeah. And she's not going to let it. I mean, at first she freaks out and she's a mess and she um, feels completely exposed and brutalized and victimized. And, um, and then she, I hope what, what my hope is that she then just feels even more secure in how much she loves her book. (laughs) Yeah. And, and feels that, that, that what she wrote was being true to, to the, um, to what she wanted to do with that book. As you, you know, I think as writers, we, we often sometimes lose sight of, of our own intentions. I don't know if that happens to you. Um, <laughs> constantly. constantly. Yeah. Yeah. Constantly. Yeah. yeah. And so like when you finish it, you don't often even, you know, fully grasp, you know, what, what what you've created in some ways i i feel like maybe maybe i'm the one obsessed with the word power but i want to press on it here only because i feel like you have just described a different type of power which is to say that the book spends so much time worried like you said about this judgment and then like you said the judgment like why do we think it matters, but of course we do. Like, of course we do. Like you and I are both in this sort of hell that is like (laughs) a book's about to come out. A book is coming out. Who's going to judge it? Who's not going to judge it? You know what? It's, it's, I find it awful. Awful. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's horrible. But, but also what you just said is kind of wonderful and feels really key to continuing to be a writer. Right. Which is that like, first of all, this absurd thing, right? But, but also deeply true. She's waiting for this judgment. She's waiting for someone to tell her what you have made is valuable. Mm -hmm. And, but actually there's something kind of wonderful about someone saying it's not. And then her being able to say, no, dude, you're wrong. Right. Like, like that to me as an artist, those have been some of the most important and valuable moments of my life, right? When someone said to me, it's bad. And I had to just sort of find in my sort of silly, mushy self, the ability to be like, no, like, you know, like you, you, I don't care if you think it's bad. I still want to make it, you know? Um, and I think that's another, maybe that's another word that's just worth asking you about and maybe a, a useful word to kind of end on yeah, sort of squishing yeah. around in, which is desire, you know, um, and even connecting it back to what you were saying about, I, I love your male friend saying, we'll just let her have some fun. <laughs> like, you know, the idea that as, you know, 
we can call it whatever we want, but like as people who, in, who inhabit female bodies, desire always feels, I, I don't know if always, but like often feels transgressive. Yes. Um, and so how your desire around your art as an artist, as a poet, um, and, a, and, a, and a writer in all different forms has has shifted has you have you become have you felt more powerful in your ability to feel desire or has mm -hmm. your relationship to that desire to make work shifted over the course of your career mm -hmm. you know i feel over the course of my career a more and more desire to inhabit me to inhabit my voice what i what's important to me and, you know, I used to be so, this is embarrassing to say, but I, I, I will say it, that I used to, what I used to fear most if I got a negative review was shame. That, um, you know, this sense of shame that I had done something wrong or that I, people would, what would people think um, if, you know, if a critic doesn't praise my work or, um and that would actually devastate me. Um, and even though, you know, I luckily have had positive um, critical praise, but, you know, there's always this, and, you know, certainly there, it's not 100% at all. It never can be 100%. But, um, you know, when you're a person who has very high expectations for, for herself, uh, which I do, it's really difficult to, um, to deal with, you know, for me, the pleasure is the writing of the, of, of the book and the inhabiting of an imaginary world. And I just, you know, really love it. Even when I struggle with it, I love it. Um, but I really have been working hard of, over this idea that I, I no longer can feel shame or embarrassment for anything that I've put out there because um, it's what I create and only I can do it the same way that, you know, whatever book you write, only you could write that book. Yeah. Um, so that is empowering. And, you know, sometimes I still have, you know, I should keep a, one of my poet um, friends, and I love this so much, um, her, her, she wouldn't mind me saying this, but um, Marilyn Chin, who's an incredible poet, and she's um, Chinese American. And she, I think um, I asked her once in a panel discussion, um, about, you know, why she writes. And she said that she writes to embarrass her ancestors. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just, love I love that. And so, you know, sometimes it's so much about permission, you know, can, yeah. can we give ourselves permission? Can I give myself this permission to have this woman who's on the verge as a character and see what will happen to her? That that's how I began it. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so what if I embarrass my ancestors or anyone? <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's, I mean, I love, maybe I we should embarrass yeah, our ancestors, yeah, I love, right? I love that idea of it as a directive, you right. know, instead of even, cause it's, I mean, you said the word shame and I honestly, there's not. And when we, when we stop, I'm going to 
ask you to write me a long email about this because there's there's perhaps no feeling that I inhabit more consistently than than shame, I think. Um, and it's, and yes. it's, oh. you know, it's, it's fascinating. A friend of mine said to speaking of very wise friends, a friend of mine said to me, he was like, you know, interestingly male, he was like, you know, you want people to look at you. And then the minute they look at you, you want to disappear. And I said, yes, exactly. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, but, but also that's, I guess the trick is, is I want them to look at my work, right? I don't actually want them to look at me, um, but then, like you said, it's so interesting what you said, because if you the more you would try to inhabit your work, the more it feels I just I, I feel this way about you. But I just I felt this I was just talking to a writer earlier today whom I've never met. And and both of us has read one another's work. And I and I said I was like I was like, you know, there's something almost it's such a strange kind of prickly feeling because you feel like you know them more intimately than meeting them in per you know, it's mm -hmm. almost like, like I feel almost embarrassed to meet a writer whom I've never met in person, but I've read their work because I feel like I know them on this sort of guttural level that's so different than knowing, seeing them with their lipstick on, right? For lack of a better, <laughs> right. you know? And so it's like, yeah, I don't know if this is a question. I just, I'm just, I'm so excited by the idea of finding a way to get rid of the shame. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like I, I admire it. You know, I don't, I, it's, it feels, again, it feels, it feels embarrassing how much it informs the choices that I make from day to day. It may, I, I wonder if it empowers your work though that in the actual writing of of your work you struggle with that i i think i can i have this ability to absolutely separate myself when i'm what i'm writing um from that thank goodness and maybe that's why for me actually balancing a full-time job is a good thing for me um because i think that that what's so important for writers is to be able to go down the rabbit hole without shame. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And it's it, almost the shame is like then, you know, you become self-conscious of what you've done in a way. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because I feel like I agree with that. And I also feel uh, this is, this is sort of a silly, this is a, this is a strange thing, but so I reviewed Jonathan Franzen's most recent novel a few months ago and very oddly and sort of disconcertingly are my new book and his book sort of span a similar period of time of days leading up to Christmas. Mm -hmm. um, and I, the whole time I was working on my book, I, I had this feeling of like, you got to keep it moving. You got to keep it moving. You got to keep them interested. You got to, you know, like sh shut up Lynn and just keep, you know, like I just, there's this, there is this part of my brain that's sort of saying they're not going to, you know, this sort of jazz hands, the desire to keep people engaged in right. my work and to work hard to give them this thing. Right. And I was reading the Franzen and I just, I kept, I kept telling my husband, I kept trying to show my husband how it felt like a physically different relationship to making a book insofar as 
I he didn't need to do the. He was just like, no, he. I want a flashback for a hundred pages. So right, here you right. go. You know, and it was, and it was really. Uh, to be honest, I'm, I'm glad, to not, be him. In so, I mean, I would like, I would like, I would like other aspects of his life, but I'm, right. I'm glad that I, that I have been taught for whatever reason that the other people in the room matter more than I do, mm-hmm. Me you too. know? Yeah. Um, and again, this is less about friends and, and more just like artistically how I, there are impulses that I have learned in part as a result of being a woman that again, I think actually make my work better, whether it's critically received as better remains to be seen is it, you know, but, but like you said, that idea of like finding pride in your work that is your own, there are very specific aspects of my work. And, and I think you've talked about this with regard to your character's work, but I wonder about your own work mm-hmm. that are informed by my relationship to femininity that I'm, that I'm proud of. Yes. Yes. I am too. Um, you know, I, I wonder if that feeling of like being the smallest person in the room or the person that wants to disappear in the room, you know, I wonder if that too is something ingrained sometimes in, I mean, you know, I mean, we've been talking about feminine and masculine sensibilities or realities or whatever we can define. And I just wonder, I feel perhaps that that was, at least for me, kind of ingrained. Um, And so it was always a struggle and, you know, to come out to say, I want this, you know, Um, this is for me, I'm much more comfortable serving others. I'm much more comfortable actually with my editor's hat on talking up work by my, you know, accomplished and brilliant authors that I publish than myself. So, you know, where does that come from? Um, And I think that, you know, I I understand what you're saying about, about Jonathan Franzen, um, and, you know, I mean, I actually, um, you know, I, I, I admire his work very much, many aspects of his work very much. But, you know, because he was anointed as um, a, I think that the New York Times called him the best writer of the 20th century. I mean, that's a huge gift, but perhaps a huge burden. Yeah. You know, so, so, um, it's complicated. Yeah. Well, and I also think, and maybe this is a good place to land. Like, I also think everything that you've just described more recently, and I think, again, I think your book explores a bit of this, but also you as a person in the literary world explore some of this, which is to say that, like, I also think what you just described is a kind of power, right? Like your, your appreciation and, desire to celebrate your writers is wonderful you know I mean I mean I I understand like we're supposed to promote ourselves Mm -hmm. right but like I also think the desire to take care of one another like I wish that were more of a priority in the literary community you know like and and I feel 
you know, one of the things I love about being a writer is being a reader. One of the yes. things I love about being yes. a writer is knowing other writers, right? Like talking to them, right? Collaboration, like, and all of those things feel connected to what you just described, right? And I think, I don't know, it, it feels it feels interesting to think about those things as also power. Mm -hmm. I love that. Thank you for saying that. I'm going to derive power from that. Uh, really, I so appreciate that because it's very true. Uh, in my inner self, it's it's how I feel. And the self-promotion that, that um, we ask of writers, and I have shamelessly been doing a bit of, you know, makes me feel awful. But... <laughs> But, you know, it's, I guess it's, it's, it's where we are in this world right now, where authors, you know, social media is a big factor. And, um, but yes, I do wish that writers would celebrate other writers more. Yeah. I, I do. I think that it's so important and, and um, it's and so important also for, for, to, um, to evade narcissism yeah. um, as much as possible as a writer. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and I think that's, that's connected to what you said about Franzen, right? Which is it's not his fault. Mm -hmm. It's not his fault. He was anointed. Right. He's a, he's a brilliant writer, yes. right? It's the larger systemic idea that there should ever be a such thing, such a thing as the best writer. Like, right. Like that's an absurd, right idea so it has nothing to do with his specific brand of brilliance right it's just i think it's more to do with the idea that there are tons there are so many different gradations of brilliance you know um and i think i i'm most excited by the idea of just like finding ways to make space for all the different types of brilliant and book and you know writer that could exist yes i do too i i feel that it's part of our calling and we must do that. Um, and we must try to help younger writers and younger women in the workplace is something that I think about a lot. Um, what a joy it is to talk with you, Lynn. I feel like we can be best friends. Yes. <laughs> yes. We'll have to, we'll have to, yes, we have to, we have to do this much more informally yes. Yes. Um, soon and talk more about shame. Um, right. yes. But it was, it was, I, I'm really honored to be able to talk to you. And again, I think I'm, I'm grateful for all the ways you move through the literary world um, as a community. Thank you so much, Lynn. I feel the same. So I can't wait to finish flights and everyone that's coming November. What's the pub date? Eighth. Eighth. November eighth. Yes. So yes. maybe I can come on here to talk about your book. I'd love to do that. Yeah, that would be lovely. I would yeah. love I would love that. Thank you. So thank you all. Thank you for listening. Please visit alwaysauthors.com to learn about upcoming episodes, to read a transcript of this episode, to buy the books discussed here, and for more information about our sponsors, bookfinity.com and Buxton Books. Always Authors is an exclusive production of Atomic Focus Entertainment. Cheers. <laughs>